Please, 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 if you're tempted to skip through these introductory comments, I encourage you to give them a listen, as the following conversation will make more sense with the following context provided. Having said that, welcome to Session 80 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. My original plan was to chat with Drs. David Palmer and Josh Pritchard about the distinctions between the verbal behavior or traditional Skinnerian approach to language and cognition and relational frame theory. Well, what happened was we had a technical glitch that prevented Josh from joining Dave and me. So the first 20 minutes or so, it's just the two of us. We eventually figured out the problem and Josh was able to join the conversation. So think of this podcast as being presented in two acts, if you will. This is a topic that I think we just barely scratched the surface of. And I don't think it's going to be our last word on it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. So if you have some to share, go to the show notes for this episode and leave a comment on the page for this particular session or comment on my Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram feeds. I'd love, again, I'd love to hear what you think. We mentioned a handful of articles and I've tried my best to provide links at behavioralobservations.com, but I may have missed one here or there. So again, let me know if you catch a reference that didn't make it into the session notes. And while you're at behavioralobservations.com, sign up for the newsletter and you'll get show notes for subsequent episodes delivered directly to your email inbox. Before we get to this conversation, this podcast episode is brought to you by the Essential for Living Assessment and Curriculum. Get free shipping on all purchases until June 1st by using the discount code EFLBOPO501. I realize that that's a mouthful, so again, go to the show notes for this episode to get that discount code for shipping. Uh, also, the New Hampshire Association for Behavior Analysis is hosting Dr. Solon Forte on April 19th in Bedford, New Hampshire. The title of her event is Navigating Through Cultural Barriers in Applied Behavioral Analysis, and it's good for three ethics CEs. Uh, again, the links for this will be in the show notes. And lastly... Remote Fieldwork Supervision for BCBA Trainees, the book I co-wrote with Dr. Lisa Britton, who is an expert in providing high-quality distance-based supervision, is finally out. If you're interested in learning more about this, go to behavioralobservations.com and click on the link to the supervision book. That's the, uh, in the menu at the top of the homepage of the website. So uh, I think that's it for my opening remarks. So without any further delay, please enjoy this fun conversation with Drs. David Palmer and Josh Pritchard. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Dr. David Palmer, thanks for joining me today on the Behavioral Observations Podcast. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, well, this is a, uh, uh, I guess, an impromptu uh, a pairing, if you will. We were supposed to be joined by a third who will, uh, I guess, rename, remain nameless for the time being. Um, and we're going to have a little uh, RFT slash verbal behavior uh, chat. I was going to frame it up as a debate, but thought better of it and thinking it's probably the, the way I want to approach is more of a of a discussion, I suppose. Um, but it, it it turns out it's it's uh, it's the two of us. So you're you're stuck with me, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and, uh, but I appreciate you coming on the show. So, um, so we're going to get into this stuff in just a second here. But, uh, as I was just telling you off air, I like to start every show with asking guests to share how they first discovered behavior analysis and how they decide they want to do it as a, uh, as a career, if you will. So if you can start by telling us how you got into this line of work, that would be great. Okay. I, uh, I graduated from college in 1969 as a geology major, and 1969, the Vietnam War was raging, and, and my dearest ambition was to dodge the draft. Uh, and so I, I graduated from college without any intention at all of studying, I mean, doing anything in geology. I wasn't really that interested in it, even though I majored in it. Um, and uh, But I was, uh, I was a big fan of Henry David Thoreau. And... Um, I went on a trip um, down south with some friends. We were going to go cave exploring in Virginia. And uh, one of my friends had a book on his shelf called Walden 2. I said, Walden? Oh, no, Walden 2. Well, this is going to have something to do with Thoreau. So I picked up the book, and I brought it with me on this trip. And I read Walden 2 in the back seat of a Dodge Dart going to and from Virginia. And I was just blown away by Walden 2. I said, oh, my God, how come I, no one ever told me about this? So I became a Walden 2 fanatic. Uh, when I came back from that trip, I, um, I thought about it more and more, and I argued it back and forth with myself. And the more I thought about it, the more persuaded I was that this was um, really something worth devoting somebody one's life to. So I spent the next dozen years, or 10 years anyway, trying to start a Walden 2 community. And in those days, you could get a community going just by, uh, you know, standing on a street corner and say, who wants to join a commune? And all sorts of long-haired people would show up with their goats and so on. And, and uh, uh, so I, I, I found it fairly easy to assemble a group of people interested in, in alternative societies, but it was hard as hell to find anyone who was interested in an experimental approach to to uh, communities. So... Um, so that um, that Walden II period, even though it was um, productive in its own way, didn't uh, didn't change the world. But as a as a side effect, I I started reading um, the rest of the Skinner canon, and so I read um, almost all of Skinner's books over the course of that period. I was trying to start Walden II, and I became more and more persuaded of the uh, power and validity of the approach. And I was particularly struck by the analogy between shaping and natural selection um, because I was a thoroughgoing Darwinian. And, and, and when I realized that shaping has the same kind of, um, well, fundamental process as natural selection, I was just s- sort of thunderstruck. And I said, this has to be right. So, well, um, Anyway, I wasn't making much headway uh, trying to change the world uh, through Walden II, but um, I went down and visited Skinner in Harvard and, and um, told him how, how excited I was about behaviorism. And he said, you know, you really ought to go to graduate school if you want to uh, – you should know what you're doing. So uh, I mean, he didn't put it quite that bluntly. But, um, Can I ask uh, you for a second? Sure. How, how, do, how do you just go about – 
visiting Skinner. Like, ah. I think that <laughs> I just can't imagine that. But, you know, it obviously it was at a different time. But tell us a little bit about how that how that contact well, was made. It's easy. I wrote him a fan letter. I said, um, golly, BF. Uh, I just love your book and I'm trying to, I mean, I didn't put it in, you know, I, I, it was, um, written in a formal, um, formal style, but it boiled down to, I'm your, I'm your man, Skinner, uh, and I'm trying to start a Walden 2 community out here in Massachusetts. <clears throat> and, um, and I think this is the solution to all the world's problems. <clears throat> and he wrote back the next day saying, as long as you're in Massachusetts, why don't you stop by sometime? So it was an invitation to come see him. And he was like this with everyone. He he would respond to correspondence um, every day uh, with a line or two, uh, very systematically. Um, and um, he was sing- he had a single-minded devotion to advancing the field. So uh, he recognized that sort of watering the seeds of interest in somebody's um, repertoire could potentially, uh, you know, lead to something, something, um, more. So, so he, he took the time to, he casually invited me and then took the time to see me for about an hour at his office at Harvard. That's amazing. So that's, I'm sorry. I just had to, I just had to well, think, find fun. the details of that. Cause that's just so, so in today's day and age and with, you know, the explosion of the field, the way it's going and yeah. the reverence that practitioners have for and, and um, academics alike have for his enormous contribution to our understanding of all things behavior. It just is a funny thing to think about, you know, chatting him up for an hour and, you know, <laughs> okay. you know upon the acceptance of, a, of an invitation. So, yes, um, uh, your your listeners might be interested in an anecdote. Um, Ernie Vargas is Skinner's son-in-law, and I was chatting with uh, Ernie Vargas a year or so ago. Uh, he told me that uh, one day he went in to see his father-in-law in his office, and he had a huge stack of correspondence beside him, um, you know, about a foot high of, of letters that he'd received that morning. And um, uh, Ernie said, oh, I'll, I'll come back at, uh, you know, three or four hours. And Skinner said, no, 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 I'll be done in an hour. Um, and so uh, Ernie Vargas watched him, and he would take an envelope in his left hand, shake it open, or, or rather the, the letters were open. He would shake it open and and um, read the letter, and he would say, 14, uh, add, uh, um, I will be available on the 19th. Uh, and his secretary would take the Q14 the and type out, uh, letter number 14 and the next letter might be letter number seven. In other words, Skinner had all these, uh, kind of canned responses to typical questions that his secretary knew how to transcribe into a, uh, an elegant letter with a, uh, closing and salutation and so on. So he was extremely efficient in all of his, um, all of his, uh, correspondence. So he had these the concept of shortcuts long uh, long before they were able to be done digitally. That's right. That's that, right. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, uh, so um, uh, my my undergraduate 
career, this is an uh, inspiration for those uh, who who have similar situation. I had lousy grades as an undergraduate, um, and so there was no hope of getting into graduate school. But um, but as it turned out, I, I I kind of pried open the door by taking classes with professors I wanted to work with. Um, so I went to UMass and I I signed up for classes with John Donahoe and Beth Salzer-Azaroff, uh, both of whom are fairly prominent or, or were fairly prominent in the field. I guess they're both still alive. Um, but uh, in any case, um, I was not a, an enrolled student, but at UMass you can take classes just by paying a fee. And so um, so I paid my fee and I, I took the classes. And I was by then a, a very, very well-read Skinnerian. I knew Skinner's works inside out. So I was pretty well uh, prepared for those classes, and they um, they encouraged me to apply to graduate school, and they wrote me letters of recommendation, <laughs> and I, I applied to work with John himself, John Donahoe himself. So having seen me in action um, before the application hit his desk helped a lot, and, and, it, and it didn't just help a lot. It got me into graduate school. So that's a way that students could uh, that's something students could take advantage of if they if they despair about their misspent youth but still want to pursue a graduate degree is to to um, just uh, park yourself on somebody's doorstep until they they let you in well you know i've heard other stories that are similar uh, maybe not to the point of you know uh, getting into graduate school but just the receptivity that many prominent people in our field have from uh you know to 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 seemingly random correspondence you know mm-hmm. uh, I, i've noticed it myself and i've reached out to ask people to come on the podcast but i've also uh seen it when i've wanted a particular like wanted to get a reprint of a paper or something like that or you know get some clarification on something that someone wrote and i always find that um you know people who do this type of work are 99.99% of the time exceedingly generous with their time mm-hmm. uh and so it's it's i i i don't i think it's something that you can't remind people often enough so um what um so what made you want to uh so i get the idea so you 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 kind of caught the bug if you will um mm-hmm. you got some letters of rec to go to grad school and so um uh, where, where did you end up going to school? And, and um, yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit about you know the work you did as a grad student. Oh, okay, I, I studied with John Donahoe at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, and John um, is an experimental uh, analyst uh, with a pigeon lab, and, and a pigeon and rat lab. And so it was an experimental degree I got with John. Um, I did my um, my master's. I got my master's degree. My master's thesis was uh, studying inter-response times uh, in pigeons. Um, and uh, my dissertation was on the blocking of conditioned reinforcement in pigeons. So it was a strictly experimental program in which I learned the um, basic experimental analysis uh, uh, procedures and controls and so on. Um, but throughout the period I was in graduate school, I was continually um, concerned with conceptual questions. 
Uh, and our lab consisted of a kind of a dialogue about these um, in, interpretive extensions of behavior analysis to to complex behavior and the world at large. So we saw we saw the experimental analysis as sort of the the labor the the, the yeah the laboratory where principles are derived, and then the real world is where we apply them and or we extend them. Um, in an in an interpretive way to try to make sense of of things that can't be experimentally analyzed. So um, so right from the start, um, I was particularly concerned with the problem of how behavior analysts should interpret memory. And between the master's degree and the PhD, in order in other words to, to proceed on to the to the uh, past the master's level at UMass, one had to write what, what was then called a comprehensive paper, which was a paper that integrated various uh, threads of in the field of psychology, not just behavior analysis, but from um, other other disciplines as well, into a coherent paper. So I took memory as my challenge, and I wrote a paper... Um, it was actually it wasn't actually my first paper, but it's it's the paper that is sometimes cited as called the behavioral interpretation of memory, um, and that was um, that was done when I was in graduate school, and that was really the kind of the prototype for what I continued to do after graduating um, in 1987 or 1988. I guess I got my degree. I see, and. Uh what uh well since you brought it up um what uh, and and i realize it's probably difficult to summarize a, a work of that magnitude in the in the, the space of a podcast but what was the general uh interpretation or account if you will from memory uh, at yeah. least the one that you proffered yeah okay no this 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 is a good question and and it should be of interest to your listeners um if they haven't encountered this before, the, the the problem with the behavioral interpretation of memory is it, it seems like magic. Uh, and the prototypical example I used in my paper was this. What did you have for breakfast yesterday? And you think for a bit and you say, uh, I had a bagel and cream cheese for breakfast. And I say, splendid, splendid, Matt. Um, and I shower you with gold coins and... and um, uh, arrange a date with some movie star. So, um, so um, the the behavior is lavishly reinforced in a particular context, and then 24 hours later, we meet again in exactly the same place, wearing the same clothes in the same chair in the same place, and so on. And I say, Matt, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? And you say French toast. Um, now the point is that. The stimulus conditions are identical, but one day you said yesterday had a bagel, and the next day you said yesterday had French toast, and both of them are, quotes, true. That is, an independent observer would say the same thing. You did have a bagel on Thursday, and you did have French toast on fri- uh, Friday, whatever it was. Um, now, how can a behavior analyst explain that? Because it seems as though... There's no stimulus control explanation for it. And this was the puzzle that I tried to solve in my, in my paper. 
And um, so in the paper, I and, and this this incidentally for anyone who's interested, the 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 paper is is published in uh, uh, one of the context press books uh, in 1991, and um, the uh, paper is recapitulated in the book Learning and Complex Behavior by Donahoe and Palmer, which is uh, usually sold at ABBA. Anyway, um, so there are, there are sources for following through on this in case anyone's interested. In the paper, I made a distinction between memory as a stimulus control phenomenon and memory as a problem-solving phenomenon. Uh, and the distinction is this. Uh, if um, Let's take a... a uh, a, a, a pigeon who um, is in a chamber and uh, learns that when it pecks the disc in the presence of a blue light, uh, food will be delivered. And then 24 hours later, you turn the blue light on again and the pigeon will peck. Um, I call that the endurance of stimulus control because on Thursday, the pigeon uh, the blue light acquired control over behavior, over the behavior of pecking. And on Friday, when the blue light was presented again, the behavior occurred. Um, that's standard stimulus control in the, or the endurance of stimulus control. And there's nothing mysterious about it. Um, we can understand it in terms of uh, physiological underpinnings, or we can understand it simply in terms of the principle of reinforcement. Um, but the example I started with differs from that. When I said, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? It's the same question. The stimulus conditions are identical, and yet the answer is different. Um, the, the pigeon pecks the disc on, on Thursday, and the pigeon pecks the disc on Friday. The pigeon doesn't peck the disc on Thursday and then turn in a circle on Friday. The pigeon engages in the same behavior, the same reinforced behavior. But you didn't uh, engage in the same reinforced behavior. You engaged in a different topography of behavior under the conditions of this, of the very same conditions under which reinforcement occurred. So it seems like magic. Well, I, I interpret it as problem solving. That this isn't memory at all. It's 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 problem solving. You uh, uh, you have to introduce additional controlling variables in order to evoke French toast or or um, a bagel or whatever it might be. In other words, French toast isn't under the control of what did you have for breakfast yesterday. It's under the control of whatever mediating events you bring to bear. That is, you think, oh, yesterday. What's what's today? Today is uh, today's Wednesday. So yesterday was Tuesday. I came back from Calaba on Monday night, uh, and I got in at midnight. So I, I, I was up really late. Oh yeah, I didn't even get up till till uh, uh, ten in the morning yesterday. Uh, so in other words, you, you start to build up um, supplementary stimuli uh, through this process of. Um, uh, sort of um, narrowing in on, on, the, on the subject. You, you provide yourself with additional prompts, and eventually the sum of those additional prompts um, is may or may not be, but often is sufficient to evoke the verbal behavior, which is scheduled for reinforcement. Is it basically kind of like uh, you know co- covertly tacting, you know, in, in yes. reverse? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I saw uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Carbone yeah. uh, do some pres- do a talk on this at New Hampshire ABBA this year. And mm-hmm. you know what? Th- this actually, I think, is alludes to some of the stuff that you wrote about uh, in uh, uh, Data in Search of Principle, the uh, yeah. critique of the uh, uh, of uh, relational frame theory. And um, you know what, Dave? I think our third conversation, our, our conversational partner, uh, is is uh, maybe available. So. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to hit pause right here, and then uh, then we can uh, get uh, um, uh, get Josh in on this conversation, and we can kind of proceed. How's that sound? Many children and adults with moderate to severe disabilities, including but not limited to autism, struggle to learn functional skills such as communication, daily living, and tolerating skills skills that will matter in their adult lives. Essential for Living is a comprehensive curriculum, assessment, skill-tracking instrument, and practitioner handbook designed to help teachers, speech-language pathologists, and behavior analysts teach functional skills and manage problem behavior. EFL includes 3,000 skills and focuses on the essential eight skills that are necessary for effective adult living. These include expressing your needs and wants, Waiting, accepting no, transitioning, responding as a listener, tolerating commonly occurring situations, and avoiding hazardous ones. EFL also focuses on communication and language skills by helping those who are nonverbal find an effective alternative method of speaking that lasts a lifetime. The communication, language, and functional academic skills in EFL are also linked to the Common Core State Standards. EFL is more than just a list of skills. It's when and how to teach those skills, and it's how to track small increments of learner progress often experienced by learners, especially those with severe handicaps. Join the ranks of school districts, private schools, ABA programs, and supported living communities that are effectively using Essential for Living to improve the lives of their students and residents. Visit our website to learn more about Essential for Living. Then give EFL two weeks and get a curriculum for a lifetime. All right. Uh, I had great news. Our third leg of the stool, if you will, has now joined us, uh, Dr. Josh Pritchard. Um, thanks for, uh, thanks for being available and, uh, being able to join us in progress today on this discussion. So, uh, you know, we're going to kind of toss around RFT and the verbal behavior approach for a little bit here, have some fun discussion, but for those who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, uh, give us, um, give us a little rundown about, uh, about that. I know you got a lot of irons in the fire, so just, uh, tell us what, uh, what you do as a behavior analyst. Okay. So right now, I think my, my largest focus is on um, supporting uh, entrepreneurial endeavors of, of a variety of folks that are behavior scientists or behavior analysts in, in different areas. And my latest focus is we're looking to scale up um, my clinic outfit doing the kind of traditional ABA into um, a, a much larger uh, organization across the country. Very cool. So, um, all right. So, 
it's probably a million different directions we can go with that, but we're going to try to stay on task here because, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, so let's, let's talk about this. Um, so again, the, uh, original concept for this whole thing came from, uh, I think Mark Sunberg's presentation at the Florida Association for Behavior Analysis. And Josh, I think you were doing some kind of live commentary via Facebook. And, uh, I was having a, a weapons grade case of, uh, fear of missing out. Uh, during during that, because it sounded like a really uh, uh, thought provoking uh, address that uh, Dr. Sunberg provided, and at the same time, uh, you, you were you were kind of responding again in almost real time, and it, it it sounded almost like a like a debate of sorts. And uh, so I had messaged you and say, "Hey, let's uh, let's let's actually do this," and uh, you're successful in bringing Dave into this this conversation, Dave. Uh, um, you know, being, um, noteworthy for many reasons, but, uh, you know, some of the, uh, 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 some of his writings on, uh, relational frame theory. Um, so, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for kind of, uh, helping me kind of launch this, this conversation here. So I think one of the things I'd like to do first, before we even get into the, the, the nitty gritty of, you know, what is and isn't so is to kind of just get, See if we can get some sort of agreement on basic terms. So, uh, one of the places I'd like to start is just, you know, what, what are, what are the different, I guess, camps of thought or schools of thought that we're talking about? And, you know, what, what do we, what, what can we agree to call them and how will we define them? So, um, Dave, I'd like to start with you. So, you know, I, I suppose my first question then based on this is, you know, would, would you call, would you would you call this the verbal behavior approach? Is there a better term? And and regardless of what you want to call it, how would you define that as kind of like an interpretation for language and cognition? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good place to start. First of all, I, I don't have a name for it. I don't I don't think of myself as representing a something with a name. Um, I I uh, if if I asked to invent one, I, I think I'd call it the problem-solving approach um, or uh, sort of the Skinnerian approach as opposed to the post-Skinnerian approach. Um, so um, subjects in RFT experiments are posed with problems and they have to figure out the rules. And so I, um, I'm interested in all of the behavior that the that the subjects engage in in order to control their behavior at the moment they they respond and it seems to me and I, I may be wrong about this because I, I'm not well versed in relational frame theory uh, post the book that is I, I read the book um, for my review but and, and I've read a few papers here and there but I'm not uh, I'm not an expert on RFT. But it seems to me it treats performance as a unitary phenomenon. There's a single analytic unit, the generalized operant, which is taken to explain uh, behavior. But um, but I take a much more molecular approach. Um, so I see it as uh, the, the performance of subjects in these experiments consists of many, uh, a blizzard of concurrent public and private events that all have to be taken into account if we're going to understand the uh, terminal behavior of the subjects. 
And some of this behavior is unfortunately likely to be um, private. Uh, but if that private behavior is relevant, then it has to be included either um, in a speculative way or an interpretive way in the analysis. Um, and uh, so I, I, uh, I, I'm interested in, in the within-trial behavior of the subjects, and I don't think we can understand the performance without considering that within trial behavior. And a minute ago, Matt, you and I were talking about memory. And um, uh, the same thing is true there. If, if um, your odd, Matt, I mean, uh, Josh is coming in late to this, but your audience heard me ask the question, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? And I suggested that you can't, we can't understand the answer to your to that question. That is, if you say French toast, we can't understand the, the behavior of saying French toast without taking into consideration other behavior that you engaged in between the posing of the question and your answer. That is, uh, you engaged in private problem-solving behavior when the question was asked, you started probing your repertoire. You said, okay, what day of the week is it? Where was I then? Um, you kind of build a, uh, uh, you build an edifice of supplementary cues that all bear on, um, bear on the answer. And then, um, eventually the answer is evoked through the, not just the question, but the additional cues that you supply. And we have to consider those supplementary cues or we don't have an explanation. And it seems to me that RFT looks too globally just at the um, observable endpoints of the performance and doesn't consider the um, potentially well the the potentially necessary mediating events. They're not always necessary, but but if mediating events are necessary, then then we have to consider them. All right, so um, we we can dig into the the, the challenge, the problems with RFT as as you see it in just a second. I want to yeah. I want to give Josh a chance to kind of jump in here, and mm-hmm. um, Josh, from your perspective, can you kind of describe what what RFT is and you know uh, how, how it differs from this more I guess traditionalist account? Um, you know what 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 problem was it trying to solve and, and so forth? Okay, yeah, I think, and I've thought quite a bit about it. I, I don't know that there's value in trying to um, hold them up as it's this or that as much as, in my view, it's it's a, a continuum of what may be called the verbal behavior approach or that quote-unquote camp. might be that that gets you through elementary operants and then things that are beyond that have to be dealt with in some way. And whether that's naming, whether that's RFT, whether that's Skinner's, I mean, the second half of his book also includes uh, frames that in, in kind of map on. I think that's where maybe there's some um, discussion to be had, which which is the most pragmatic approach to, to resolving those. But I don't know that, I've seen, I think a, a common misconception, I've, I've never seen Dave make it, but with with kind of at large that I hear, um, so this may not be very relevant here because I don't like I said I, don't, I think Dave and I probably agree on is that um, there's not like Skinner's verbal behavior and then RFT as two separate entities. It's RFT 
proponents are suggesting this is an extension or a build on on top of it. So the question just becomes, was it the appropriate uh, the appropriate elaboration? And I think the d- distinction is one is a more molecular that folk hinges on mediational events, and the other may not have that and be a little bit more molar. Is kind of my. I don't know if Dave would agree with that, but that seems to me to be the the biggest difference between people that seem to be a proponent of one or the other. I, I do agree with that. I think it is a molecular molar issue in a sense, um, and that is um, th- that's one way of framing the difference. I see. So, um, Josh, uh, f- can you just kind of quickly? Um, Talk about what RFT is, and we can talk about you know whether it's an extension or or, or a uh, um, a jumping off from the I guess you know um, Skinnerian uh, tr- view. But look, just so we're all kind of clear on on terms, and for listeners who may not have uh, delved into this either um, as students or even as practitioners, uh, can you just give us a quick definition of of what RFT is, uh, and uh, go from there. I can give it a shot. Well, there's no quick definition of RFT, yeah. right? That's the, I guess that's the thing. I think the, uh, I think the, uh, uh, but you know, it, it, it in broad strokes, what is it trying to explain and account for? Let's, 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 let's set it up that way. Okay. I think it's, it's attempting to, um, explain and account for language and cognition of the humans at large. And, um, I think it does it. The things that I think are critical for discussion for the audience to know about is the uh, arbitrarily applicable relational responding, often called AARR, um, which the, the frames are sort of a shorthand for that, which all that means is that convention dictates the topography of what you say and what function shows up for words versus um, non um, when you have non-arbitrary things like size and weight that are immutable features of a, of a stimulus object. That's the, the, to me, the, one of the really critical features is, is this conventionally dictated, um, structure. The other is the idea that the sort of bi-directional relation, um, that, that moves beyond sameness or equivalence. So understanding that as you move into different kinds of relations, that when you train one way and it's bidirectionally acquired via the derivation, that that that's a different thing than just a transfer stimulus uh, function like you get in equivalence. So kind of the discussion of how, for instance, opposite means if A is opposite to B and B is opposite to C in equivalence triangle, that would mean A is opposite to C, but that's not the case here. So I think the understanding of how that works is is uh, articulated differently. That's that stimulus transformation um, than the traditional generalization and stimulus transfer. I feel like those are the biggest chunks that are important. So were the frames of you know coordination, opposition, etc., uh, previously unaccounted for, and and or or how would um, Dave? How would how were those things? Explained or accounted for prior to RFT coming along from your perspective? They're accounted for as problem solving. So um, uh, you present someone with a 
problem and then uh, there's some rule for solving the problem and you give them enough examples, they, they will induce the rule and then they'll apply the rule to a novel problem. So, so the novel, novel control comes from applying the rule in a novel way. Skinner analyzed this in terms of autoclitic frames. Uh, so he, uh, an example of an autoclitic frame is X is bigger than Y. And Skinner said that the frame comes to strength whenever there's a relation of that sort present in the environment. So if you're looking at an elephant and a mouse, the frame X is bigger than Y will come to strength. Then X and Y are variable terms. Uh, it can be an elephant or it can be a book or it can be a, a piano. It can be anything. Whatever X is, um, is, it's supplied by the immediate context. But the, the, the frame X is bigger than Y is occasioned by the relationship. So, um, so the rule becomes, uh, find, uh, use the frame X is bigger than Y and, and, and apply it to this novel, con- this novel, novel context. But it, impl- it, it involves behavior on the part of the subject. That is, the subject in the experiment has to deduce the rule, uh, and then generalize, uh, and, and then behave and apply that rule to, to novel exemplars. Uh, and um, that induction of the rule occurs typically covertly, although it doesn't have to be covert. Most people engage in, in covert verbal behavior, but they could do it overtly. I see. So, so Josh, what is, um, what is gained by, uh, or um, what, what is, is there something lacking with that kind of problem solving account when, and 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 discussing how people um, m- might uh, relate things bigger, smaller, you know, uh, here, there, hierarchically, etc. Um, well, in that case, I would. It might be more helpful to think of a. That's not arbitrary because it's physical properties. So, uh, thinking more like value of money would might might be easier. Like this. This uh, dime is is more than a, a nickel. Um, that's where you kind of see the one for me. When I remember when I was pushing, oh, I see a kind of a difference. Pigeon would do this differently. Um, so I think the I, I believe we start teasing that apart. There's a lot of uh, these kind of mediating components that is where at the very least feels cumbersome. Um, so there might simply be an economy gain of being able to speak of these in um, sort of the shorthand. Uh, I believe, and some of the literature I think is bearing out, that um, there might be a different set of um, – well, and, and actually the problem solving that Skinner lays out, which is you're not contacting reinforcement, you're a ranger environment to do so um, – RFT doesn't disagree with that, even in the sense of private. We're, we just talk about the arrangement of the environment can be arbitrary, uh, arbitrarily applicable in a sense that you can bring to bear uh, these stimulus functions that aren't tied to their the stimulus objects. So I'm curious if we were to run that scenario out, instead of bigger than how you would get um, 
because it, it starts to explain things. One of the things that I think is valuable about RFT is explaining how we get similes and metaphors and, and how those uh, act on behavior. That to me is is harder for me to break down and explain absent the RFT components. Um, so that's where I feel like there's a little bit of a gayness. And I'm guessing, as I as I described this, it's an economy issue of I don't think it would be impossible to break it down as, as Dave did in that example because as you get more complicated you just get more steps um, it's just cumbersome to be able to, to do that you mean, you mean it's cumbersome to, to go through that uh, that kind of private tacting of, of you know tracing your steps back to you know yesterday to tell what you had for dinner or whatever yeah or- like let's talk about that for a second I think this might help for me, my view of if you ask me yesterday's breakfast, um, I can answer that really quickly, uh, partially because I only had breakfast yesterday and not from a number of, like the other days I didn't. So yesterday was kind of a novel event for me in that I had a breakfast. And I think – but someone that had breakfast every day and it varied every day, they would probably go through something more akin to what, what Dave described. And I think the reason that those are different is that – um, if you think of, and, and it's going to sound mentalistic, but I think it's helpful for this. You think of when you say breakfast, all my breakfasts pop up privately, and now I'm going to have to select from one. The idea that if I don't have it as yesterday's breakfast as a unit that I then tacked or engage in interverbal with, um, then I would have to then select. And so that's where I might start going through kind of like what Dave was saying is what's the day. Yesterday was Tuesday. And generally, the way you, I think, see that show up is what else was around Tuesday. So you start bringing to bear Tuesdayness as a stimulus function. Um, I was wearing a blue shirt. I saw, the, you know, and that's definitely a problem. That's problem solving, Alice Skinner. It fits exactly how he's described it. And I think we would not be opposed to that as a, an explanation. I think what happens eventually as you build a repertoire is some of those steps drop out by virtue of the generalized opera and the multiple exemplar training. Um, so it's it's almost, I think, the difference is, is a utility issue versus a phenomenal issue. And I'm not sure we can, I don't know if, it, if that's teasable, if that can be separated. I think that's another struggle that the quote-unquote two camps have is how can you demonstrate those differences. The best way is to do like distraction tasks and those are that that does to some degree. But again, a really fluent repertoire can can also occur concurrently while other things. So it's like a tricky that part's tricky for me to wrap because David and I've talked about this before. And so I'm let's let's, sure. let's slow down for the listener who uh, you know who uh, so when you, so when you say the tease out, we're talking about uh, asking them a, a specific question. Um, in, in which they have to respond in a way that involves what we would, you know, colloquially or uh, uh, this, you know, call memory, right? And the distraction task would be to play some sort of white noise or or something like that that would that hypothetically would interfere with perhaps some of that uh, covert behavior uh, that that we, we could perhaps loosely describe as, as problem solving. Is that what you're speaking to? Yeah, and it might be more something like seeing happy birthday in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just a stimulus event, but an active private behavior we're asking them to engage with would probably be a more 
that feels better to me as a, a potential distractor. Um, and I, I, some of the literature has shown th- that's what they did. Is they um, so like what you have for breakfast, and before you answer, start thinking happy, like singing happy birthday, and select from here. Um, but that's my my struggle with that is it you can't measure all of those events. So did they stop singing happy birthday, solve a problem, then start singing? like there's some issues there. I think that show. Up. I mean, they can do it out loud too, I suppose. So, so uh, just to make sure I'm with you, is that you're saying that some of these questions that we might ask uh, people, um, the 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 problem solving process might be too, uh, might be there might be too many steps, uh, or or it might be so uh, I guess um, arbitrary that that there's it. it that you, one perhaps couldn't, you know, again trace their steps back to and 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 generate a correct answer. Is that and and, and that's where the uh, perhaps an RFT explanation might be brought to bear. Is that what you're saying, Josh? No, I think I was I, okay. I miscommunicated. Um, I don't think it's not possible. I don't. I question the utility um, of that, and, and as an explanation, I think is the issue of. If we, and that's that sort of again molecular molar thing, we could break down everything we do even to a, a neuronal level uh, or muscle twitch level. And so the question becomes what's the unit we need to slice it for a, a pragmatic use? Um, I, I don't think that either side disagrees that there certainly could be these mediational events. I don't, I don't think that's a, a bone of contention. I think those that select RFT suggest that there's not a lot of pragmatic value in that that level. Um, I think is the, the biggest difference. At least for me, I think that's the difference that I would want to Dave, jump Can in I, here. Sorry? Yeah, please jump in. You look like you're about oh. to say something. Um, well, uh, uh, let, let's start with the claim that... Um, that it's a molar molecular distinction. And I think there's some, uh, some merit to this distinction. Um, if the mediating events are, do not need to be considered, uh, then, uh, then they can be dispensed with. And since they're unob- typically unobservable, that would be a big advantage. If we could simply ignore the mediating events and jump to order at this higher level of analysis, um, then we would have a, um, a, a a behavioral principle that didn't uh, that didn't depend upon all these little uh, molecular events. In other words, um, if um, l- l- let me just give you a kind of an, an absurd example. Um, you go to any high school and you approach a 15-year-old and you say, "What's the capital of Uzbekistan?" And within 15 seconds, the kid will say, Dushanbe. I go to the next kid. What's the capital of Uzbekistan? Uh, Maybe 30 seconds later, Dushanbe, another 15-year-old kid. Now, these kids don't know beans about Uzbekistan. They've never heard of it. But they know how to Google. So you ask them what the capital of Uzbekistan is. They're going to plug it into their phone and read off the answer, Dushanbe. Now, if you don't look at what they're actually doing, if you just ask the question uh, and then reinforce the correct answer, 
Um, it looks as though you have a functional relationship here. The question evokes the answer. And the mediating behavior of, of asking your cell phone uh, to do the work for you uh, can be ignored if all you're interested in is can the kid do it. But um, that would be fine if it always worked. But um, you go back to one of those kids and say, tell me again what the capital of Uzbekistan is, and their cell phone battery has died, and they can't do it. And you're wondering, why can't the kid answer it this, this time? If you're, if you're not attending to the cell phone as a mediating um, device, then you, you're baffled in, uh, by the variability in the child's behavior. Sometimes he can answer it and sometimes he can't. Well, the same thing comes up in, in, these, in um, these kinds of problems. If people always give you the correct answer, um, then the mediating behavior is um, under a certain set of conditions. Then you can dispense with the mediating behavior, just as we don't need to know the physiological underpinnings of, of reinforcement in order to have a functional relationship between uh, pressing the lever or uh, delivery of food and pressing the lever and so on. Um, the problem is, uh, well, from my perspective, the problem is uh, the mediating behaviors um, are necessary because the behavior is variable. Sometimes people can do it and sometimes they can't. Some subjects succeed in these experiments, some don't. Um, some take uh, 10 trials, some take 100 trials to reach, reach mastery. So, so it's accounting for the variability in behavior. Uh, and I don't think RFT has an explanation for behavioral variability. All it has an explanation for is when it works, this is how we explain it. Uh, let's see. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, please, please. Thank you. I was, uh, <laughs> it's pretty weighty stuff. So I'm just trying to process it at the same time. And it's sometimes that, uh, that, uh, interferes with forming the, the, the follow up question. So it's always the interviewer's dilemma. <laughs> that's your, that's your problem solving. That's also why you're trying to track on. Um, I think that I agree with Dave that the, the, when it doesn't happen as we expect is, is interesting. And that's where, the question becomes how do we build it? And mediational behaviors, I think, pretty important in that component. How, how do we build that out? The thing that I believe RFT is um, the part to me that, find, that I find very uh, engaging and exciting is it explains or, or gives us at least a method to investigate what um, when it's, these things happen so rapidly – that I, I think that there's a a part of the idea of a mediational chain that if it it's got to take some amount of time, each response should have duration in that, and that some things are happening um, kind of at a speed that suggests that it's not um, everybody's not engaging in that. I guess at the same type of problem solving or mediational and. To me, that's in a matter of the stimulus transformation such that whatever language you're hearing is bringing to bear different stimulus function on your response that's not necessarily that chain thing. So I, another issue may be that there's both, that you've got 
when it's novel and you don't yet have the established um, relational network, air quotes, um, then you have to engage in problem solving and that's where that kind of the rule generation shows up. And as you get more established um, relations, some of that falls out because it's a more direct transformation of stimulus function. That would be, I think, to me, a, a difference that's valuable um, and explains things that a chain leaves me feeling less satisfied with, I guess. Yes, okay. Well, there's certainly variability uh, from subject to subject and trial to trial. And let's... Um but but and and I'm I'm not sure if this is an, um, exactly what you mean or not. But it, uh, we we began by talking about memory, and I said, "What did you have for breakfast yesterday?" A better a better question, which would reveal the problem solving nature of the be- intervening behavior, would be, "What did you have for breakfast a week ago last Tuesday?" And now uh, now you say, "Holy cow." Uh, what was a week ago last Tuesday? Well, today is Wednesday, so it was two weeks ago yesterday, and and um, and and you and the the mediating behavior would become conspicuous um, because of the difficulty of the question. But eventually, you say, "Oh, yeah, that was the day that uh, Aunt uh, Matilda came, and we went out to uh, uh, the Blue Bonnet Diner and and had uh, vodka Collins for breakfast." Um, now. That took uh, 15 minutes to solve. Now, um, uh, uh, Matt didn't hear you say that, and so he says, wait, Josh, what did you say you had for breakfast uh, two weeks ago Tuesday? And you'd say vodka Collins. In other words, your behavior would be immediate because um, you have already engaged in all that spade work, and now the behavior has been reinforced in the present context. You don't need to... Uh, uh, dig up all those bodies again to uh, to control the target response. So so there's a lot of shortcutting that goes on once that mediating behavior has occurred. So I don't know if that's um, relevant to your point or not, but um, but I certainly agree that the uh, that the mediating behavior um, can be dispensed with on a second trial or, or a trial which is similar to the first trial. Uh, for example, um, if I now asked, uh, what did you, uh, where did you go two weeks ago Tuesday? Now that you've already engaged in all that uh, preliminary work, uh, we're no longer talking about breakfast, but where you went, you would be much faster in answering that question because all those uh, little pieces had been uh, already brought to strength in your repertoire. So, I, so I'm not sure that there's a um, disagreement on that. But my interpretation of it would would still consist. I would still argue that my 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 interpretation would be the same. So so is so latency sounds like to be you know to to play some I guess or does latency appear to play a role? So for example, if I asked a third grader, you know. Uh, do you trust a leprechaun or would you trust a leprechaun? They instantly say no. Right. You know, what, what is happening there? Are they, are they, uh, uh, are, are, are they thinking through a set of rules? Are they thinking through, well, you know, 
leprechauns are tricky and uh you know last year for St. Patrick's Day, you know, the leprechaun came and tipped everything over in the middle of the night and you know and et cetera. It's like, you know, I'm just trying to think like how how when, when we see short latencies to I guess novel um, or seemingly novel stimuli, you know, would that be indicative of of something that might be better described by an RFT approach as opposed to a problem solving approach? I think what you've tapped into is a problem. I see in the field, not just with RFT, really, but you've you've taken a snapshot and not you, Matt, but we all do, like took a snapshot and like kind of explained this. And the, our science doesn't, it's a historical science. So the question's less of, is that this or that? The, the better question, I think, is under what conditions does it do that? I.e., how is this, how is this response developed, selected, et cetera? And so I think you, and this gets to sort of the variability that, that Dave's talking about is, I think there are multiple ways. It could be that that was directly trained with, with a, with a picture card and, Name, you know, what's a feature of a leprechaun? They're green, short, and tricky. Well, now you've got a direct training, and that's got nothing to do with RFT in that yep. space. Um, but if you had instead had training or experience with leprechauns are um, from this certain place, and this place is where tricky people come from, and those were directly trained, but you never actually talked about that, and then you said something like, "Should I? Should I let my lep?" Try let leprechaun hold my really important thing, and you get a quick no. To me, that's an instance of that that stimulus transformation of should I let my should I let him hold an important thing? Well, that to me selects a bunch of different stimulus functions. Important things are things you don't want to lose. Important things are valuable things that are good for buying stuff. Like all those things show up, and then the, the context would select out of that the don't want to lose leprechaun comes from. Uh, has a stimulus function of steals tricks and all that shows up fast. That would be an explanation that would make sense to me from an RFT perspective. If it were rapid and there, and we looked at it, we had access to their history and said, we never saw anything that would lead to an alternative, which could be, I had to think about, well, what do and, and derive. And so I think that that's again, sort of this neither right nor wrong, they're maybe slightly different ways to look at that phenomenon. Um, the value I get from the RFT is economy of language. I can, it's somebody that's fluent in, in this terminology. When I say it, I feel like they have a good sense of, of what I'm suggesting was the origin of this response. Um, and so the, I think there's value there. I think we get sideways when we try to sort of say, is the phenomenon described in RFT or in naming or in just the problem solving uh, writ large? Or which one is the right? I, I feel like that's a, a bit of a, a mis a mispursuit. Um, okay. Because I, I don't I don't as as Dave's describing I don't disagree with. Like for instance, if Dave were like, well, what happens is. There's this this internal video camera that captures it, and then it plays it back, and you press pause. I'd start to say, well, I don't. That seems like a thing that doesn't jive. But everything he's saying fits. Every time I've talked to anybody that is in the, the quote unquote it does, there's nothing wrong headed about. Doesn't go against any of the principles that that I subscribe to. So I, I feel like that to me is is this is almost just a, a lens pers- or perspective 
angle. Um, the late you asked about latency. I think latency gives us a, a hint into you know it's definitely different if someone sits for five seconds and says something versus uh, says it immediately. But that could simply be the strength of the response too. So there's a, a bunch of things there. Sure, Dave. Luck going on, I guess, with the 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 leprechaun scenario with a very short latency. What what? Uh, how would you kind of tackle that from? An interpretation standpoint, I know it's a very unfair thing, uh, absent of the reinforcement history, et cetera, as Josh pointed out. But well, well you hypothesize that the child responds instantly, which I think is uh, probably counterfactual. Um, the, the child may be responding to um, uh, "Would you X?" by saying "No," because there's only two answers as far as he's concerned: yes and no. And um, um, if you ask why wouldn't you trust a leprechaun uh, and found out that he doesn't even know what a leprechaun is, I, I mean, you, you, uh, you're, you're hypothesizing that the child would respond immediately, that, they, uh, that, that the answer is no because they know that they're untrustworthy. Uh, I think that's implicit in your, in your question. And, and um, so, so I'm going to take that, I'm going to accept that as, as given, that the child does respond immediately because the child quote, so to speak, doesn't know, so to speak, that the leprechauns are untrustworthy. Well, the um, when you say leprechaun, the child is going to respond discriminatively to leprechaun, the word leprechaun, uh, with whatever the word leprechaun evokes in that child. And, and it may be a, 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 sort of a, a, imagining a little short green man with a buckle on his hat and uh, or it may it may mean uh, a pot of gold under a tree, or maybe um, imagining the leprechaun uh, picking your pocket. Um, uh, but if the child does not respond to the word leprechaun with any of those conditioned responses appropriate to uh, trickery, then the child is not going to answer no. But if the child responds with discriminative responses, which are, are compatible with trickery that the child may respond um, no i wouldn't i wouldn't trust him so so the answer is going to depend on the discriminative behavior of the child with respect to the to the auditory stimulus leprechaun so um, so i'm I'm arguing that listener behavior has to be taken into consideration there's a uh, the listener is uh, engages in not just a single molecular, uh, not a single monad of a response, but a kind of blizzard of discriminative responding, a cascade of responses to verbal behavior. And it's within that cascade of responses that we have to look for the control of yes or no. Since the question itself is novel, uh, we have to look for other variables to control the word no, to, to, to understand where the word no comes from. Um, so, um, so that's a very wishy-washy sort of answer. But can, can we devise an experiment that brings these behaviors closer to the surface, where we can we can um, see them more uh, more clearly? Um, because um, the uh, discriminative responses to a word are are extremely elusive from an experimental point of view. Um, but we can design experiments where the behavior of the subjects is um, is made more explicit. So um, uh, 
I think I mentioned this example to Josh the other day. Um, instead of engaging in, instead of subjecting you to a whole bunch of multiple uh, exemplar training with match to sample paradigm, I'm just going to give you the rule. Um, if a number is evenly divisible by three, um, it's in one class. If it's not evenly divisible by three, it's in the opposite class. So all the numbers that are evenly divisible by three are the same, and all the numbers that are not evenly divisible by three are the same. Um, furthermore, um, I'm going to give you a number. If it's evenly divisible by three, you're going to be shot. And if it's not evenly divisible by three, I'm going to give you a million dollars and send you on your way. And now I'm going to give you the number. It's... 222,678,487,622. Now you are either going to break out in a cold sweat and say, please, please don't shoot me, or you're going to say, uh, you're going to be leaping around with joy, but you're only going to be breaking out in a cold sweat or leaping around in joy after you've divided the number by three to figure out if it's evenly divisible, the mediating behavior then becomes conspicuous. In other words, it's not the stimulus that controls your behavior. It's not the number 213,411,681,252. It's not that that's, that's controlling your behavior. It's the three goes into carry the one, uh, three goes into this, uh, ah, it's even. It's... Um, it's the word even that controls your response or the, or the word odd or the, the, the word not even that controls your response. Um, and so the mediating behavior has to be taken into consideration, or, or rather, if you don't take the mediating behavior into consideration, you, you're not going to be able to explain the performance. But if you do take it into consideration, you'll, you'll, um, uh, you'll have a, There'll be nothing mysterious about it. I see. Um, so I would we, end that oh, yeah, with, go ahead. John. I would end that with pointing out that the once you said the even that you have that visceral reaction by virtue of that stimulus transformation of the original rule. That's where I think RFT. That's the part of that scenario that RFT is relevant to the dev, the division that mediation is not relational in that sense uh, as far as we wouldn't, it would be weird if you could do that without dividing. Yeah. So I think but the fact that suddenly even you start or odd, you start sweating. That's weird because you've never, never encountered that direct relation. It's by virtue of the, the sounds that came out of the fellow's mouth on the front side. Um, I, as, as Dave's asking, how do we create experiments? I feel like RFT gives us good technical terminology to do that what well, to do this you've got to get rid of language so we can't do we can't do an experiment asking kids about leprechauns because we can't control their history with that we don't understand what all they've had so what we need to do is create you know nonsense sounds squiggles sights and when you start to do that like and i didn't get into like c real c bumps but there's language within specifically that suggests to uh in the case of any of those things what when you ask about would you trust a leprechaun, 
Leprechauns have all sorts of features. They, they wear green. They have, you know, they sound this way. They have pots of gold. But when you ask it in a way that's, would you trust? That trust is uh, selecting a certain function, um, specifically trustworthiness or will they hurt me-ness or whatever that you might want to call that. And so there's a term for that, that when we are creating a, an experimental preparation that's full of nonsensical things, which is, I think, one of the reasons really hard to read the empirical literature because it's it's you almost I always tell my students draw it out and look at what the people actually saw and it's a lot you're, you'll suddenly go oh um, but if you have that we could start to arrange for was this a problem solving like so did they go this route or was it adopted via this network and you could kind of build that and examine it, I believe so I think there's to me there's some utility there um, that I don't know exactly how to get absent that. I don't know exactly how to get at those things empirically. I, it feels like the, the best way I could do that would be like sing a song in your head. But did they, is that, and I, I, I struggle with that. You almost have to create that whole history of language to get at it. And so to do that without certain terminology at a more specific level within there, because the other thing is we leave it at, at problem solving. And maybe you would say there's counting and dividing, and you can start to get into all of those. Um, but I feel like there's some value from from the RFT world of, of the language used. Um, the funny thing is I think that, that what I see as value, others see as non-parsimonious, so they see it as less value, almost the opposite. Um, but that's I think that's kind of – as we're describing, like, that, that to me is valuable. Yeah, you yeah. used the term economy earlier as well, and I, I was I had the same kind of uh, reaction that that could be potentially interpreted as uh, the opposite or unparsimonious or whatever you want to call it. Well, the the, the um, um, let's see, there, there's so much that we've we've covered. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, let, let me let, what, why, let me ask this while you're while you're um, trying to think of uh, mm. where to go next. But I, I guess one one question I have for both of you guys is that um, the fun the fun part about this conversation is that we're really kind of delving into some some pretty heady stuff, uh, and um, uh, uh, and it's. It's fun, but at the same time, it's daunting, especially for someone like myself who doesn't spend a ton of time thinking about these things. My question, to you guys, is: you know, what is um, what, what does the everyday practitioner uh, make of this stuff? What should they make of this stuff? Uh, how 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 can they use whether whether it's problem solving or an RT approach uh, to better inform their their, their practice? Um, or, or to what extent should they concern themselves with the minutia? Because we are in min- the minutia right now in this conversation. Um, talk, talk, talk to the everyday behavior analyst who's driving around their car on their way to a home or a clinic or a school, uh, trying to grapple with this stuff that's, that's pretty darn heady. Well, I, uh, I don't have any objection to people using multiple exemplar training and master sample procedures to achieve certain kinds of uh, results that are common in RFT experiments. Those are procedures that um, 
uh, uh, multiple exemplar training is a very powerful procedure, but of course it's not restricted to RFT. Multiple exemplar training has been around for, well, probably millennia, but um, in the literature it's been around lo- much longer than RFT. So, so um, the the procedure of of giving people um, uh, examples and non-examples is a very powerful procedure, and and if if what you're interested in is an outcome, you can. Um, you could follow the procedures and you can interpret any way you like, as long as you're getting the results you want. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a question of the parsimony of the, of the interpretation. And if you don't care about the interpretation and all you want to do is achieve a result, I don't think it, um, I don't think there's any reason to get into this kind of, um, Discussion for a for a practitioner. That is, they don't need to decide whether something is right or wrong. Um, but um, uh, the more molecular, I would always argue for a more molecular approach because there will be occasions where the molar interpretation doesn't uh, doesn't seem to work, and you want to know why it doesn't work. Why doesn't the kid know what the capital of Uzbekistan is? Why doesn't he pull out his magic little? Uh, black rectangle, and then read off the answer. Um, I mean, imagining you were a Martian who didn't know how cell phones work. Um, you, the more molecular account uh, provides an explanation not only of the success successes that RFT cites, but the failures. The more molecular account can explain why a child fails to uh, display uh AARR, whatever it was called, uh, uh, derived relational responding. Because why did he fail to respond? Because he failed to um, engage in the appropriate mediating behavior. He, uh, or he doesn't know how to divide by three, or he didn't rehearse the, um, the, um, the, the vocal stimulus when it was first presented, or he didn't respond discriminatively to the sample, or, or maybe he just wasn't paying attention. All of these things are accessible to a molecular account and they account for both the successes and the failures whereas it, it appears to me that uh, RFT accounts for the successes but not the failures again a practitioner may not need may not care about those things but um, I uh, I think the molecular account uh, has more to offer but I'm an old fuss budget, born in the <laughs> 1940s, and that's just the way I see it. Josh, <laughs> uh, are you a young fuss budget? Uh, I'm, and, I'm a uh, young fuss budget. I definitely have been uh, accused of. I don't think the word fuss budget was was used, but uh, grumpy has been for sure. Um, and and I think, frankly, the, uh, a practitioner. I don't know that they need to choose or, or think much about this in, in as much as the at, at the theoretical level. Like Dave and I, I, I really love like this could be a five six hour thing. I think we would just enjoy. What about this? And, and go back. I think it's fun. Um, the utility for the field, as far as a profession, I believe, will show up in materials developed, and I, I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Most of the BCBAs out there, what they care about is the, the kid or the adult in front of them reaching the outcomes that they're proposed to, to do. And so whatever tools 
from our science that help them do that will be selected. Um, I what I want to always push so when I had grad students in and I was pushing them to don't get stuck or seduced into um, idolatizing a, a component of our science such that you are not following the data as new things come out. And this isn't just don't idolatize Skinner, but same thing with um, if you like RFT like Steve Hayes and he comes out with something else, I don't think it's wise to say, well, that's that's the new thing to do. I think it's wise to follow the data on that. And so we've got a, a group um, on the back end developing tools um, from all sorts of camps. And then those tools go out and practitioners use them. And uh, the data should show this is the most uh, useful in this situation. I agree with a good example, actually, that I just uh, recently kind of encountered from. So the peak uh, modules, which has some RFT um, underpinning it, they have, but they're direct training modules. Not, but I was watching a, a person implement. They've got like a uh, make four count four groups of three, right? And they were just doing direct training. And if the kid didn't get it, they would show him and, and reinforce it, right? And that's mm-hmm. the direct training. As I was watching that, I you know I encountered it, and it was just slow. That was not acquiring fast. And, uh, that's the kind of thing I would say. Well, you actually should probably build some component skills there. Uh, to put, put that together, there's no sense in training that as a as a larger thing. And so I think, to me, whatever is useful should be used by a practitioner. Um, and when it stops being useful, it should be abandoned. <laughs> so that's like the least. Um, that's a wishy washy answer too, I guess. But that's. I think I'm not sure a practitioner is going to see a lot of difference on choosing one and. and choosing one orientation in as much as they will see a big difference in products developed and tools and technologies developed by those coming from different orientations. And so I I feel like that's the the biggest, where are we getting outcome changes uh, that are what we want and and better than what we had. And as we continue to look at that and, and make those decisions, that'll, That'll suss out whichever's most pragmatic for that problem. Um, I, frankly, one of the things that I struggle with is I watch, as I hear Dave explain, uh, you know, his example as sort of as a contrast. I kind of what that kind of jives with what I think. So it's not he's not wrong. So I, I, I don't know if that's different. I see Kyle Miguel publishing studies that are, uh, you know, brilliantly designed and that, but the outcomes are unsurprising because it kind of jives with what I'm thinking. Yet, I don't think it's labeled as RFT. So, um, and, and Mark Sunberg, when he's describing how he trains this or that or how he has some complex, uh, his analysis of certain complex things is not, um, you know, incompatible with, with my view. So I feel like sometimes we might simply be engaging in some, Either different resolution, slightly different perspectives, or maybe some semantic games that uh, I don't know that the phenomena are different. And I think some of the language from RFT on the front side when it first came out was intended to poke the poke some eyeballs to kind of get attention going. I'm like, are we sure we've got this done? Should we explore more? And I, I feel like we've got some residuals of that. Um, 
But if we follow our data, um, both up and down the ladder from frontline changes to people we're working with to the back-end developing technologies, I expect as long as we keep following scientific method, it's going to resolve at, at some point. Um, so I think our game right now is just the engagement at which way is the best route to get there. Um, and uh, we, I think there's a lot of self-stem. At least I think Dave and I can engage in a lot of that where we're like, oh, think of it this way. And I think there's value there, but I don't know that we'll ever get to a this is right versus that other than just what leads to better outcomes, which is at the heart of a pragmatic approach. Got it. All right. Uh, well, we're uh, coming up on the time we have allotted for this. So let's close with uh, this. You know, we probably, uh, for some people, uh, you know, might want to learn more about this. And uh, so what, uh, you know, is there a specific paper or book or anything like that that you would recommend for folks to kind of, uh, if this is a new topic for them, at least wrestling between these two, you know, I, we keep coming back to the term camps. Um uh, even though there seems to be some level of overlap or agreement, um, what would you suggest someone read uh, to to get more up to speed or to, uh, on on these uh, topics? Uh, Dave, go ahead if you want to go first. Well, um, for for Skinner's account, I would say you should read the um, chapters on the autoclitic by Skinner, um, and then. Uh, that's that's going to be pretty heavy. Uh, for papers on that are perhaps a little bit closer to the mark, I would look at um, Kyle Miguel's empirical papers that Josh just alluded to. Uh, there's a whole raft of papers by Kyle and Java and TABB, uh, the, the, well, the various behavioral journals on bidirectional naming, which are interpreted from a more molecular point of view. Where he's uh, he he's trying to uh, tackle this problem of mediating behavior and, and other things. I would encourage readers to um, be familiar with Lowenkrin's 1998 JAB paper on joint control, because Lowenkrin offers an interpretation a molecular interpretation of relational framing uh, in that 1998 JAB paper um, that um, is one that I subscribe to. Then there's a, a bunch of papers suggesting that um, uh, equivalence in relational frame experiments uh, are have a lot of variability that is uh, incompatible with um, this more molecular, or, or whether it's, it can be explained by a more molecular approach. Uh, I'd, I'd uh, point to Jay Moore's 2009 paper in the European Journal of Behavior Analysis, which is a kind of uh, raises a number of questions about uh, uh, about RFT. Uh, a very uh, interesting paper by Randell and Remington, JAB 2004, um, which essentially shows the necessity for uh, int- uh, appealing to mediating events, uh, along with a a whole program of research by Arntzen and Fields, Eric Arntzen and Lanny Fields on uh, stimulus equivalence showing the disparity between meaningless stimuli and meaningful stimuli. Um, paper by uh, Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Don Baer uh, suggesting that instead of 
using multiple exemplar training, let's just give people verbal rules that the verbal rules can establish these relations and these stimulus classes uh, almost instantly uh, without all the uh, multiple exemplar training that is uh, usually um, usually invoked. So those are some some examples. It was probably too much for the listener to take in. Uh, I will. Uh, I'm, I'm furiously writing down notes, and I will try to get these into the show notes uh, okay. for this episode. So. Yeah. So for contemporary work, Kyle Miguel, um, foundational work, Skinner, 1957, um, some um, uh, sort of molecular analyses, Randell and Remington, 2004, 1999, uh, Lanny, Lanny Fields and Eric Arntzen, a whole um, about a thousand studies on stimulus equivalents, and uh, Jose, Jesus Rosales Ruiz paper, Holt and Arntzen. Anyway. Those are some suggestions for that. All right, great, great. That's a, that's a decent bit of homework, Josh. Uh, any, anything to add to that? I think you should read all of those. Uh, I also <laughs> and submit a written paper. No, uh, yeah, I'll bite Thursday and uh, JKP analyst. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the one I always like to recommend is a Steel and Haze of ninety one. I feel like it was the first time that they did an, an experimental study saying. This is what we expect from equivalents, but this is different, and they, they walk that out. Specifically, I would recommend they develop, like draw out what the participant experienced. That's one of the things I've done with students that, that seem to be um, impactful. Uh, the other, I would say, is uh, the, the Multiple Control Behavior by Michael Palmer Sumber uh, in, in KBB in 2011, I believe, and that I think gives a, a sense of sort of this kind of what we were, what was described and always is, is good to, to look at um, this sort of, I guess, overview that's, I, I think, very accessible. Um, and I always talk about folks should check out the Foxy Learning Tutorial. It's not a, a paper to read, but because um, I struggle when someone's like, I want to do RFT, what do I read? I'm like, it's a lot to get it's not super accessible and it's quite a bit to get a sense that reading is valuable as you get through articles. So it's, it's because you have to get outside of the language to talk about the language. So those are, I always say the Foxy learning is a nice, a, a nice um, piece too. He has a real waiver when it's you do both. That'd be great. Yeah. Students have told me that they've gotten a lot out of that Foxy learning thing. Very good. All right, gentlemen. Um, this has been uh, uh, very, very thought-provoking for me. I appreciate you guys taking time out of your day. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. 